0: The church turn with me to first Peter chapter four as we continue our study of this epistle. So we're in First Peter four. We're beginning in verse twelve this morning. So hear the word of the Lord beginning in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed If you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of Galilee glory what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. Church, have you ever thought, woe is me? You might not say it in those ways. You might not have a moment where you, you open your, your Curtains and whatever you see on your front lawn causes you to clutch your pearls. You probably aren't wearing pearls around the house to begin with. But have you ever opened up your email? Have you ever seen a meeting get populated on your schedule for that day? Have you ever walked into a room where your children have been actively working to undo something that you have worked hard to do? And your thoughts... In similar terms is, woe is me. We all feel that way from time to time. One of the, the most common refrains we hear as parents, and if we were to have God's sovereign mind, we would hear ourselves say is, that's not fair. We have a very, very strong sense of justice when it has to do with us. And we have a very strong sense of justice that's very offended when things don't go the way that we would like them to go. But what Peter is writing here to the early church, an early church comprised of people like you, like me, and similar family dynamics and similar situations with different relationships and interactions with the world, is he says, do not be surprised. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying it very nicely, and he even introduces this idea with a term of endearment. He says, Beloved, like a good pastor, like a good father, like a good shepherd, Peter begins to introduce kind of a slap in the face with a gentle caress. Beloved, Stop whining about it. But he says it in a very nice way. Don't be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes we encounter situations in our day or in our life and we say, This is this should not happen. This this should not be. This is not fair. Woe is me. But Peter says it here. He says, don't treat it like it's something strange. Don't treat it like this is not the kind of thing that happens to people. Don't think of this as something that doesn't happen to people who are sinners, yes, redeemed sinners, but still the product of a broken world and all of the sin that we bring to it, the world contributes to it, and is even influenced by the evil one himself. It's not strange. It is not strange for the way that this world works to be broken. It's not strange to feel the brokenness of a broken world. What is strange, and this is a bit of a, a side note, but what is strange is the sweetness of our fellowship. That is the strange thing. What is truly strange is, is the, the, the blessings that come with being in a spirit-filled filled walk with Christ. What is strange in, in, in the scheme of this world and what we are used to is a, the spirit-filled fellowship of time with one another, singing, praises to God, that is what is strange. That is what runs perpendicular, which runs completely contrary to the way this world is, the way that we once were, but for Christ. Fiery trials are not strange, church. This is strange. Fiery trials are normal. The the, the blessing of worship through song and through supper and from the the soothing salve that is the Word of God This is the strange thing. We rejoice in the strange. In chapter 8 of Luke, Jesus actually addresses what happens if we treat suffering as strange. In the parable of the sower in the soils, Jesus, in explaining this to, to his disciples, a wonderful, beautiful picture of condescension in the sense that He has this long parable, and the disciples are looking wide-eyed and confused, and he says, in this instance, doesn't always do it after a parable, he says, let me explain it to you. And we, 2,000 years later, get the benefit of him explaining the parable. In explaining the parable, talking about one of those soils, Jesus says, and the ones on the rock, so the so the seeds that were sown on the rock, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, and they believe for a little while, and in a time of testing fall away. Fiery trials are an opportunity for assurance. Fiery trials are an opportunity to strengthen our faith. We, earlier in the service, and as we often do, we have a time of confession and a time of assurance. Those both are necessary. Those both are important. They're essential components of our walk to bring our our, our fallenness before a God who knows it. But in doing so, we profess that we are aware that we are fallen. But then what we often don't always see with the same clarity that we see our fallenness is our security in a good, holy God. And so he gives us assurance. He often also gives us assurance as we go through fiery trials. When we go through difficult times, if we turn inward, we often don't feel security. If we turn outward into the world, try, trying to find that solution, the, 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 the how to work through the difficult equation that a sinful world has given us, we oftentimes end up with a sum that is informed by what we've Googled or what we've seen on TV. And we don't get assurance from that. We are left with emptiness. And in fact, what Christ here says is that when we treat things as strange, when we treat suffering and trials as not an opportunity to turn to him, but an opportunity for despair, that is actually the anti-assurance. That is the opposite of assurance. If our modus operandi, the way that we often react in difficult situations is to turn not towards him, but into ourselves and out towards the world. That is why we don't have the assurance that we should have in Christ. So Peter introduces this again in a sweet way, but in a very upfront way. Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But he goes on to say, but rejoice. What a counterintuitive impulse to rejoice at suffering. Think of, think of the, the, the most recent difficult thing that you've had to engage with. Think of something in your own life. It's not hard for us as a church to think of difficult things in our life as a community. Rejoice. But why? Because we're, we're sadistic? Because there's some sort of weird, uh, um, you know, like, pietistic, you know, self-deprecation we think of the, the those you know men out in the deserts who would lash themselves and wear hair shirts and wouldn't deprive themselves for twenty four hours, but would deprive themselves for day after day after day. Go and then you know turn to something delicious like room temperature water and moldy bread. And why do you do that? Because, well, that's that's how we know that we love God because we're miserable. That's not what He's saying. Rejoice in so far, not rejoicing in the fiery trials for the fiery trials' sake. But he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Going back to the introductory remarks, that's not fair. We've all said it. We've all heard it. When we say it, we think it's completely justified. When others say it, then we have a witty retort. There's only one set of sufferings that has ever not been fair, and that's the sufferings of Christ. Christ. The entire humiliating life that he existed incarnate was not fair in the sense that he didn't deserve it. He willfully entered into it. He truly experienced it. But in, in three decades prior to a crown of thorns and a lash back and crucified hand and feet, he suffered in a way that was not fair. Every one of the things that we endure God, in his sovereign mind, and his sovereign will, has a perfect explanation for our sin, the sin of this world. But Christ had no fairness in what he endured. And so we rejoice because in Christ, when we suffer, our lives effectively have a way in which we can see our lives running parallel to his. Christ suffered. We suffer. Notice, though, that Peter takes it to the next level. Peter actually lets us see over the horizon, over what is so often for us to see in our finite human minds when he says, but insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He makes a tie. He makes a tether. He makes a connection to our rejoicing in the difficulty of life today with being linked to the rejoicing that we are going to have in life everlasting. Which once more reminds us that our eternal lives don't start when we die. Our eternal lives don't start when Christ returns. But our eternal lives have already begun in Christ. We are rejoicing in our sufferings with Christ because we know that it will lead to a rejoicing and a glorification in Christ our lives, we can say, don't have the, the, the import, don't have the, uh, the significance of the life of Christ. Our sufferings don't have the, the impact that the sufferings of Christ do. But Scripture makes it clear that there is a relationship there. They are tied together, that we are linked to Christ in our humanity because he is truly human. And in so, we are linked to Christ in our suffering because he truly suffered. Knowing, of course, that Christ endured all things, endured all temptation, but without sin, and therefore stands as a perfect mediator between us and God. So when we say, God, it hurts. Say, Christ, this is broken. He doesn't see it in, as, as a, like a scientist looks at something under a microscope. He walked these same roads that we walked. He felt those same things, the same physical pains, the same emotional pains, the same relational pains that we experience, he experienced. And so we share in it with him. Peter goes on to address something that's certainly out in front of us every day of our lives as we look at our culture, as he looked in verse 14. Peter says if you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. He gives us a few different things to think about here. The first one is in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed. Again, This is one of those beautiful dichotomies and oxymorons that we see in Scripture. You are blessed when you are insulted. This echoes so much of what Christ himself said, and you can almost see Peter understanding something now, a few decades after Christ had left him, where he is now beginning to see the things that inevitably perplexed him the first time he heard them. How can I bless those who are persecuting me. But here he writes in the Spirit, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What might this look like, church? What might it look like to be insulted for the name of Christ, 2023? There's a lot of things we can think of. But there's two main categories. We can be insulted for the name of Christ because of what we don't We are the one salmon swimming upstream when all the other salmon are going downstream. We're the only ones moving into danger when everyone else is moving out of danger. We are the only ones standing firm when everyone else is sinking away, or vice versa. We have a picture of this in Daniel chapter 3. There's so many pictures of this in the New Testament, so many pictures of this in the Old Testament, but. Children, I think we we all look at so many of the stories in Daniel. The stories that we see in the book of Daniel are often these great stories that have these pictures of heroes. And we see them and why they are heroic because of their integrity and who they are. So, boys and girls, Daniel. When we think of Daniel, we think of a few big stories. We think of the fiery furnace... That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you ever get three fish, I would encourage you to name them those things. My children did not take me up on that suggestion. So we have boxtail, shiny spot, and little cutie. Not nearly as biblical as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't listen to the world, and so they got thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel didn't listen to the king, and so he got thrown into the... Everyone says it's so quiet. Lion's Den. These are amazing stories of, of men, of young men, young Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, young men, and Daniel, an old man at that time who had courage, who did what everybody else was doing the opposite, and they did what God wanted them to do, and God rewarded them. In Daniel chapter 3, the, the, the warning that was given for the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story Following Christ means eventually you are going to stand out. That's what holiness means. It means being set apart. It might look like this situation here in Daniel where these three young men, young men who had proven themselves by their character, they had good reputation. They had proven kind of their, their, their dietary regimen as being superior to that of everyone else. They had done all of the right things. They had been respectful. They had been winsome. They had been nice. But they still were thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not cross that solid line that their convictions held them behind. They didn't have to do anything to be persecuted. They didn't have to do anything to be insulted. They refused to fly the flag. They refused to use the vocabulary that was being foisted upon them by the culture. They refused to bow to the culture of death and the culture of insanity and the culture of idolatry, and they stood firm and they stood fast for what they knew to be true. And by not moving, they were insulted. they were persecuted. Holiness means will eventually look different will eventually stand out. And when everyone else is kneeling, and the crowd is surveyed, those who are standing head and shoulders above the crowd will be the ones who are seen. And when we are taken in chains, or when we are blocked on social media, or when we are passed over for promotion, or when our children are not invited to the birthday party, we don't say, what strange trial has come upon me. We know that this is to be expected. And we cannot rest on the laurels of a culture that has this vestigial kind of Christian influence hanging upon it. We have to understand that where we may have had fertile comfort over the last few decades and generations, that has simply given us a base from which we can now stand somewhere firmly, for God. Our children's world is a much different world than ours is. Our grandchildren's world is going to be a much different world than we see today. And we can say this because our world is a different world than what came a generation or two generations before us. And standing versus kneeling is going to be something that truly requires a cost that must be counted. We will be insulted for the name of Christ by what we don't do. But similarly, we can be insulted for the name of Christ because of what we do. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said things that weren't popular. Most of the minor prophets said things that weren't popular. Jeremiah famously said something that wasn't popular. Before the king, he said, Thus saith the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, But he who goes out to the Chaldean shall live. And he continues on his his prophecy, telling the king, your plans aren't going to work. Things are not going your way. The returns are in. Your numbers are bad. And I've gotten this from very good, reliable information, the sovereign God of the universe. The officials, clutching their pearls for the king, say, let this man be put to death. For he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. He's offended them. He has triggered them. He has micro-aggressed them, if you will. This man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. Do you hear that, church? What remarkable parallels we can find today in our culture. Jeremiah was being criticized by the king's officials because he was speaking the truth. But they heard the truth and they were saying, the truth hurts our feelings. This truth is not truly, this truth is not truly truth. This love is not truly love. This can't be from God because it offends our sensibilities. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern, tied up, and dropped into an empty, muddy well because he knew what God said. He had the word of the Lord, now he had it in this special revelatory way that the prophets of the Old Testament had, but Jeremiah didn't have everything that came after Jeremiah. Jeremiah certainly didn't have the New Testament. So what we are equipped with, what we are armed with to contend with all of the errors that creep into the church and all of the errors that exist in the culture is actually superseding that which Jeremiah had because it is much more comprehensive in that we have the fullness of revelation, first and foremost because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but also the complete canon of the Word of God. And so, church, you may very well have to say something. You may very well have to speak words that are perceived as hateful, intolerant, unloving. They may be seen as violent. They may be seen as offensive when all they are is the normal, natural, bare words that have been spoken since the dawn of time. Words about marriage, words about life, words about gender, things that have made sense to everyone everywhere, but for some reason in our culture are so incredibly complicated. We'll be insulted for the name of Christ because of what we do and of what we say. I heard it written, I read it recently, that if someone isn't offended, that we're not doing it right. If someone isn't offended, that we're not doing it right. Think of it. Everything that I've just said just now, the songs that, that Justin led us in, if you were to gather any random 100 people and bring them in and say, seriously consider the words that have been said. If someone is not twinged, If someone is not tweaked by something that we've said in 45 minutes of gathering together, then what are we doing? Are we truly being countercultural? Are we truly moving in the the right direction? I would say, I, I would wager no. But what that doesn't mean is that we need to seek to offend people. So if someone isn't offended, we're not doing it right. But if someone is offended because we're doing it wrong, that's a completely different story. If we eye people as they come in the door and we say, how can we shove the knife of what the conviction that already is there, how can we shove that in a little bit further? That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to to use words that are are abrasive needlessly. We need to, as people of the book, allow God's word to speak. As spirit-driven people, allow God's spirit to work. But we don't back down from speaking the truth. If we're going through the text line by line and we get to that verse that just is going to be really, really difficult to explain when it gets spoken, we don't shy away from it. And as we have interactions with our neighbors, as we have interaction with our culture, as we have interaction with coworkers and the T-ball team and all the different places that we are are brought out to by God into the world, inevitably we'll have opportunities to be insulted in the name of Christ because of what we do do. So we can be insulted for the name of Christ because of what we do, and we can be insulted for the name of Christ because we don't do. But then Peter gives us a good reminder in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer. That's not justifiable. You can't kill someone and say, but I'm a Christian. I guess this whole, you know, you know death sentence I received is the consequence of the fiery trials that come upon me because I know Christ. You no, know, suffer as a thief. I stole, but we were all out of grape juice for the Lord's Supper, so I had to steal. I am being persecuted. Or of an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now, this is remarkable. I love the lists in Scripture. All right? Murderer, everyone boo-hiss, thief, boo-hiss, evildoer. You lump everyone else in there, or as a meddler. And all of us who have meddled say, I'm not as bad as a murderer. Proverbs 26 says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by his ears. If you have a dog and you have children, remember this proverb. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. This is a really lame example. And it seems so very... Um, I don't don't like using examples that are are really, like, narrow in their scope, but it's also just so powerful. Don't get online and start problems. It's not a timeless example, Lord willing. Don't get online and start problems. You're never going to change anyone's mind on Facebook. You're never going to change anyone's mind on Twitter. You're never going to change anyone's mind on a forum. It's not going to happen. Give me an example of when it has happened. I'll be in the hallway afterwards. It only leads to more problems. And more often than not, all it does is stir the pot and cause issues. It's kind of like throwing a grenade, closing the door, walking away, waiting half an hour, and expecting things to be better when you come back. But there's so many other examples of that. Sticking your nose in where you don't belong, knowing half of the story, and rushing to judgment. Meddling is, as we talked about last week, you know, everyone understands that murdering is bad. Everyone knows that stealing is bad. We get that. We think just a little meddling might be okay if I do it with tact and I do it with discernment. But that's not how it works. That's not how it exists. It's like saying, you know, a little bit of bleach on her brand new, you know, blue sweater will probably take care of of the tiny stain. It doesn't work that way. I'm not speaking from experience. It's never a good idea. And this is the thing that that Peter straight up says. This is not what I'm talking about. You will be insulted if you are walking in Christ's way and you hold the line. You will be insulted if you are walking in Christ's way and you speak up when the opportunity presents itself. But what he's not asking for is to go out on a limb and transcend God's law and in doing so, be insulted for it. That doesn't mean that we cast people out of the kingdom if they sin and, and receive the, their, their just deserts. It it's not the kind of thing that we can look to and say that we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ because he didn't sin to get in the situation that he was in. And verse 16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's so much we could talk about with that church. But the idea and that uh, the name Christian is a pejorative in a sense in the, in the, the early world is just the idea of, of you're a little Christ. You, you follow this guy so much, we're going to name you after him. And this thing that we rejoice in, Peter is one of the few examples of the word Christian being used in Scripture. He's saying, if this is what you're called, if this is what you're suffering as, if you're being lumped in with the rest of us, don't be ashamed. Glorify in that. Wear it as a badge of honor. That's not easy. When we are ostracized, when we are, again, not invited to sit at the cool kids' table, whatever it might be, we glorify God in the name Christian, even in our suffering, if we have lived the right way. If we have not done, if we're not suffering because we... Because of our sin. If we are not invited to sit at the cool kids table because we've been a jerk to the cool kids is one thing. But if we've been doing the right thing and we have not been invited, if we've been passed over, if we have been ignored, if we've been maligned, then we, we rejoice in Christ. Peter says in verse 17, For is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a literary formula that's being used in this passage that we see often. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God is going to certainly chastise us. And we've talked about that in these first four chapters of how God cares for and chastises and corrects and rebukes and disciplines those he loves. Any good father will do that. Any good employer will give an honest performance review to his subordinate. Anybody who, who has an a, a authoritative position over someone will truly correct them, steer them, train them, mold them in who they ought to be. It's not always comfortable for us. It's not always good to get that performance review and have those areas for improvement. They're three pages long in small font, and the successes are four or five bullet points on the first page. And we have to sit with that. It's not fun. It's not easy. But at the same time, what a blessing to have that from someone who cares, who pays enough attention to give us that feedback, give us that information. How much more great is the benefits of a chastising God to his children, showing us where we are wrong, showing us where we need to confess, showing us where we have our blind spots and our pride and where we think we know better than him and his word. And he chastises us. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so again, he uses this literary device, an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we think there's going to be chastisement for us, those who God loves, those who God has redeemed, those whom Christ has died for, there is coming a greater judgment. And I think it's interesting. Why why does he put this in here? Why does he include this in talking about suffering? Because so often we think of a world that is persecuting, a world that is insulting, and we think, they're going to get away with it. We're the minority. Sanity is what is scarcely found today, and no one seems to be getting any ill results for living an insane life. Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Ultimate vindication, ultimate judgment rests in God's hands. It's not our job as a church to meter it out. And we have to live in the light of the fact that we are saved, not by our wisdom, not being in the right place at the right time or the right bloodline or the right pedigree or the right knowledge or anything like that, but only by the grace of God, that being in the household of God, being bought into the household of God. Quoting from the Old Testament, from Proverbs again, he says, He says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God is in the business of being a consuming fire. Fire refines. Fire takes us from being lumpy and soft and ragged on the edges. And over time, fire shapes us and molds us and burns off the dross and the gunk that we should not have in our life. But that same fire, to those who do not have the solid core that is the Spirit of Christ, they are destroyed. They are burned up. So this is a reminder of the vindication that will come to Christians who suffer for God. It is a reminder of that ultimate justice that's not ours to meter out, but that is resting firmly in the holy God's hand. I think it's important to to say here that We are chastised not because God enjoys poking Christians. Those who are condemned are not not condemned because God enjoys damning unbelievers. All of this is the result of sin. All of this is a result of our original sin. All of this is also a result of the sin that we willingly run towards. It's a reminder that all of our life is the result of grace. A grace accomplished only by the work of Christ, only by his work of the cross. If we are clinging to anything that is of our own doing, then we have missed the gospel. If we have brought anything to the foot of the cross, then we are completely unable to grasp it with everything that we have. If we're holding on to our works, if we're holding on to maybe even the effect of a baptism or taking of the Lord's Supper... Or we're hanging on to something that we did at one point in time, then we're holding on to too much of us and we're not holding on to enough of Christ. So, in closing, look at verse 19. Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. What a wonderful refocus. This sermon, like last sermon, this text, like last text, is profoundly applicable. It's very practical. It informs us how we are to live as we leave this place. It informs us how we leave and live this week as we engage with what we see in the news, with our family, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. But we don't leave saying, here's a thing I have to do. Our text doesn't leave us with, well, here's the three steps to having a happy life. Here's the four steps to living for Jesus this week. Our text this week leaves us with the proper focus and the proper posture as we go out into the world to do what Christ has given us through his word this week. Let those who suffer, and all of us in one way, shape, or form are suffering, do so according to God's will and entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering will happen. Don't make any mistake about it. Don't be surprised if it happens on your way home. Don't be surprised if it happens on your way here a week from now. Suffering will happen. But go about it the right way. And and do it according to God's will. You can suffer well and you can suffer badly. And trust in God. Psalm 31 says, For you are my rock and my fortress. We read this this week as we were going through our Bible reading plan. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Yahweh, faithful God. We trust in God. This is the point, church. He is the focus. Our sufferings aren't the focus. Those who are causing our sufferings aren't the focus. The way out of our sufferings isn't the focus. The focus is is, has to be, must be God. Because where are you? Are you in his kingdom? Are you in someone else's kingdom? Whose way of dealing with problems is better, your way of dealing with problems or God's way of dealing with problems? What words we have to remind ourselves with, what words I have to remind myself that I am not part of the sovereign kingdom of Matthew, but I am part of the sovereign kingdom of God that my wisdom, my knowledge, my education, my experience, none of those things matter in light of the perfection that I have in Christ. And so I need to focus on him. You need to focus on him. We need to focus on him. This is our call. When we are faced with a situation where we might have to sit down when everyone stands up, focus on Christ. When we are focused in a situation where we want to really point out what's wrong in our culture, but we do so in a wrong way, focus on Christ. This is our call. We are called to suffer, but do so according to God's will, and to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We'll conclude with these words from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He preached once, Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy for us to say, woe is me. It's easier for us to consider just the complexity of our individual lives and our family and our church and contemplate every one of the variables and the sum of their parts and just wallow in brokenness. Lord, that's pride. Pride. That's looking at the mirror more than it is looking at the immensity of the sky that you've created. That's gazing at ourself and not gazing at you. Lord, break us of that. Strip away our propensity to be self-absorbed. Considering the natural repercussions often of our sin as something that we don't deserve. And also strip us of that propensity to think of ourselves as better than your son. Not deserving insult. Not deserving trial. Not deserving pain. Lord, we don't rejoice and glory in the brokenness of, of a sinful world. But teach us, Lord, to rejoice in suffering for Christ's sake. And Lord, as we do so, draw us closer to him. Use difficult experiences. Use good experiences too. We don't shy away from those. Use all experiences to conform us into the image of your son. We have confidence because we have promises in your word that that will happen, that you are in the process of making us more righteous, sanctifying us day by day till an ultimate glorification and rejoicing in glory along with your son is our beautiful inheritance. But remind us, Lord, that this has not been accomplished by us. This has only been accomplished by you. This has only happened through the great triune work of your foreordination of all things, your son's perfect atoning death on the cross, and the application of that atonement by your spirit as we are each regenerated when we come to know you in space and time. Remind us of your great Godhead, of your great immensity, of your great sovereignty, Lord. Remind us of how small and dependent we are. And in doing so, allow our cares, our worries, our sufferings, and our trials to float away as so much chaff in the great wind of the storm that is your power. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.